Thank you for reading from First Samuel 2, the, um, the song and the prayer that Hannah offered up to the Lord, which we'll look at a little bit in our time today. Um, but yeah, you can keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapters 1 and briefly parts of chapter 2 today. Um, the last two weeks we've been looking at a story of Gideon and seeing how Gideon uh, was not a good example of faith, that Gideon ended up being a man who um, demonstrated um, time and time again lack of faith and trust in God and then leading his own people into idolatry and sin. But today we have a more positive story, um, a story of a woman named Hannah who would be, um, I know of some Hannahs in my own life, I know of some, some Samuels in her own life, we have a Samuel here, my, I have a brother-in-law named Samuel. And it's taken from this passage in the Bible here. Um, so we'll look at the story of Hannah, who I hope would give you uh, much hope. Um, just because it's a story of a woman, I hope no man in here would think that there's nothing for them to learn. There's something great to learn from this story of Hannah. And oftentimes in Scripture, we see that women are the ones who have the tender, these tender hearts before the Lord, something that us men also need to be reminded of the need to have also. Um, Hannah's story is unique because it teaches us, um, especially in today's political climate of uh, lots of fighting going on, it teaches us how to respond to people who are antagonistic towards us or who say things that upset us and cause relation, relational conflict. And Hannah is someone who feels this very deeply in, in her relationship with a co-wife that she has, Panina. And so I hope today that we can find encouragement from this woman who lived 3,000 years ago but trusted in the omnipotent God that he would be the one to help her in her deepest cry. So let's pray, to, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get going into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it always is the source we can come back to because it teaches us about you. And I pray today, this morning, Lord, would you use the Spirit to help me share from your word and also use it to convict in our own lives of sin we might have, but also things that we can do to, um, that we need to release to you to grow in our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. So the book First and Second Samuel sounds like it would be two books, but in the Hebrew it's just one book, and it was written. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given so that it's literally from God's mouth, inspired by him. But as you read the Bible, you can notice that each book of the Bible might have different flavors that are, um, that are different from one another, and that's because humans wrote it. And this is kind of a core theological belief that most of you would know, already if you've been in the church for a while. And some say that the books uh, 1 and 2 Samuel were written by Samuel up until the point when he died, and then someone else would have had to carry that on. Perhaps it was Ezra who compiled these stories um, a few hundred years later. It's not exactly known who wrote these books, but we see that the main importance is to really show all of Israel and us today what was going on in this crucial time period in, in Israel's history. It was the end of the Judges, and we saw in the last verse of Judges kind of this terrible, um, chaotic, moral collapse. The, the last verse of Judges says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. 
And that was the, the state right before this book starts in 1 Samuel. And then we see this dramatic change in Israel's history. Well, now they had a king in Saul, and he was obviously not a godly king, but then later on David would become king. But this person, Samuel, would be the, the, the key uh, catalytic uh, person that helped the, the change. I don't know if you're familiar with the term uh, caretaker government, like a government in between two different systems. Samuel was the leader of that, you could say. And Samuel's story is very unique because of how he grew up, and which we'll look at today. So the time is probably right around 10th century B.C. So like I said earlier, about 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to tell this story, and you can read through uh, as you like, or just listen to me. Um, but we're looking at 1 Samuel here in chapter 1. So the story begins with essentially Hannah's husband, a man named Elkanah. He's a Jewish man from the tribe of Ephraim in the hill country. He has two wives, and because we see in the text that Hannah's listed as the first wife, we can assume that she was uh, the older one taken first as his wife, and then a second woman, Panina. And she has multiple children, but Hannah has not yet had any. And so even though we see in the Bible and the Old Testament more so polygamy occurring, it wasn't something that was the norm. And why you might ask yourself as you read the Bible, well, why would any man have more than one wife? Um, a lot of times in those rural communities, it would happen because there was, there was uh, more farming that needed to be done, so more children helped that be able to go on. And, or sometimes it happened because men had enough wealth and they thought, well, um, my, I'm not content enough with one wife. I'll have more than one. We saw this in the story of Gideon. He had multiple wives and even 70 children. But another reason why a man could take on an, another wife then was because someone was barren. And if your first wife was barren and she wasn't producing children, there was enough social pressure on you and your wife that then you might want to take on another one so that you could have children and therefore your community could be would praise you, give you honor for being the, the type of people that had children, that there wasn't something wrong with you necessarily. Well, anyways, Elkanah did this. We don't know the exact reason why he took on two wives, but he loved Hannah, it says, and he would go yearly to Shiloh, a 15-mile journey. Every year he would go there, which would be about a two-day's walk, two-day's journey to go to worship the Lord, to offer sacrifices. Now, Shiloh, what is Shiloh? Well, this was a town that in jo Joshua 18, after a lot of the land of Canaan had been conquered, this was the land where they set the Ark of the, or the, the, Ark of the Covenant, but the Tent of Meeting, the tabernacle, was established here for a few hundred years before Solomon built this huge, fancy, ornate temple um, to, to worship God in Jerusalem. And so for several hundred years, this was the holy place of Israel. This was the place where they would go to offer sacrifices, where the priests lived, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Holy of Holies. This was the most holy place, and Elkanah would go yearly to offer sacrifices there. Um, later on in Jeremiah's ministry, he warns Jerusalem um, to stop their idolatry. In Jeremiah 7, he says to stop your idolatry, otherwise you'll be just like Shiloh, 
which we get the impression that Shiloh is destroyed. And then later on, Jerusalem would also be destroyed. But this was a temporary place for a few hundred years where God's presence was keenly felt. So Elkanah, we get the idea that he's a pious man. He would go yearly to offer these sacrifices. But at this place, there was two men particularly that were wicked and evil, and they were Eli's sons. Eli was the priest then, but he has sons who were also functioning in that role, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were serving there, and we'll find out later that they were scoundrels, that they would take the offerings that they weren't supposed to take. They would, they would have illicit relationships with the women that were working there, um, and they were, they were essentially stealing from God. But even though these men were there, thank God that Israelites didn't just say, oh, why would I go to, to church and worship God there? I still will worship. I still will sacrifice to him. And so the offering, it looks like that Elkanah is giving is called the fellowship offering. It's a, like a peace offering where you could, if you're fulfilling a vow or just wanting to say thank you to the Lord, you would come and sacrifice an animal. You would then later on eat, eat of its meat, and you would go on your way. It was, a, it was a thankfulness to God offering. And when the offering was made, you, I said you would receive some of this meat back. Well, apparently Elkanah loved his first wife more than the second, and he would give extra meat to her, which was not something that you, you can just easily go to Wendy's today and say, oh, I don't want the single patty, I want the double patty. You know, meat was a rare treat in those days, and the, the source of protein would have been a sign of extra love. And so this, the two wives are watching this, and Panina, the younger wife with children, said, I want that love that Elkin is giving to Hannah, and she ca this caused great jealousy in her own heart. And notice that these two women wanted what the other had, and they were jealous of that. Well, in verse 5, we see that Hannah's problem is result of the Lord closing her womb, that she's barren, but it was actually God who caused this to happen. And for the Israelites, this idea of barrenness would have already been understood. There was multiple women in the Old Testament, and I'll mention some of these women, um, that were barren. Either the Lord had caused them to be barren or caused them then thankfully to give birth but we get the idea that God, the Israelites had understood that God is the creator. He's the one who brings forth life. David said in Psalm 139, some wonderful words about that, that he says, You created me in my inner, you create, excuse me, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So we understand that Israel, and hopefully us today, sees God as the creator from conception all the way to sustaining people's life till they die. But I want to just take a quick look, uh, pause from this text, and just look at some of the other stories of barrenness in the scriptures. One, which you probably know, is Sarah and Abram. Sarah and Abram were promised that through Abram, all his, that through him, all the nations would be blessed and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And Abraham was an old guy. He was 70 when that, 75 or so when that promise was first given. And then he kept hearing it throughout his, old, his life. And then by the time that his wife was 90 years old, she finally gave birth to her first or, well, her, yeah, her first son, Isaac. Then in Isaac, uh, he married Rebekah. And in Genesis 25, 
we see that Rebekah also couldn't have children. And Isaac prayed on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, and God answered that, and Jacob and Esau were born. Then later on, we see Jacob had two wives, and Rachel was one who was barren, couldn't give birth, and um, but her sister and co-wife Leah could. And so God, then there was a period of time it looked like God had closed her womb, then closed Leah's womb, and Anyways, God answered the prayer and gave her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And then in Judges 13, Manoah and his wife, we don't know her name, she was barren and an angel of the Lord came to her and said that you will give birth to a child. And that child ended up being Samson who would rule Israel for a period of time as a judge. There's more examples in the Old Testament that Hannah yet wouldn't have known about, but there's the Shunammite child who came with, uh, who Elijah spoke to, that she got pregnant in 2 Kings 4, and then Josiah's birth in 1 Kings 13. So there's multiple incidents, incidents in the Old Testament where you see that God is the, the one who has the, the key in, in the womb to open up um, women to get pregnant, to give, give uh, birth eventually. And in the New Testament, we see these fabulous examples in John the Baptist also, and then in Jesus our Lord too. So there's many examples of the Lord doing, doing amazing things for people who have been barren. And for Hannah, the most recent story would have been, in her mind, Samson. And this probably would have just occurred about 100 years before Hannah would get pregnant and give birth to Samuel. Now, culturally speaking, what does barrenness actually look like? Um, This was a huge issue. Um, If a woman could not get pregnant, oftentimes, or if a couple could not get pregnant, oftentimes it was the woman who was blamed, that it was her problem and not the man's problem. Nowadays, with some infertility, we know that that's not our infertility research. We know that's not the truth, that men can also have physical issues to um, not be able to produce children. But a man then could have a few options. He could take on a second wife I mentioned earlier, or he could divorce his first this wife. And if you divorced your wife then, your wife was um, tainted goods in the eyes of the culture. For her to marry a decent husband later on would be so impossible that she would have to marry maybe a drug addict or someone who was a, just a, a bad guy. And so you see that children were this gift to parents, not just that they could snuggle and have fun and cuddle with them, watch them grow up, but children literally was like the, um, what can I say today, like the retirement account your children would go or grow up, and then they would care for you physically in your old age. There was no nursing homes, no assisted living that they would send you away to. They were the nursing home. They were the assisted living. And so if you didn't have children, not only were you socially um, dishonored, you didn't have anyone to care for you when you were older. It'd be like my grandmother, who's now in the hospital, not having anyone to watch her, she just imagine you how fast you would die in those situations because of that, not having anyone to care for you. But to have a child would mean favor from the community around you and then protection um, and care and love and support as you got older. So you can picture Hannah now in this situation of not having any children, that she's um, got 
uh, we'll see some rivalry going on, but that she's in this terrible social predicament. Her womb is closed up, and I could imagine that she'd be an anxious person, person thinking, who's going to care for me when I get older? What is my life going to look like? And she's more, um, but thankfully she is more loved from her husband, but then that causes an additional issue of Panina becoming her rival. It says this in verse 7, that she would provoke Hannah yearly and year by year, and when they would go up uh, to offer these sacrifice, Hannah would off, uh, lose her appetite, that conflict was so great, and she would just weep greatly. And her husband comes along, Elkanah, and I don't know what you think of him, but when I read the story of, El- of Hannah, I think her husband is quite aloof, not understanding her real thoughts, her real emotional um, trouble that she's going through. And he says to her, well, what's the matter? Aren't I more to you than 10 sons? It seems like he's patronizing her, like, oh, aren't I just enough for you? And it seems that maybe he's trying to help her, but it's just like covering a a geyser, this gushing geyser with a Band-Aid. And so Hannah prays back to God. She doesn't answer in a disrespectful way. She prays back to God. And at the time of her prayer, the priest or the um, old priest, you could say the former priest, Eli, is watching nearby. Eli is an old guy at this time. He's not a young man. He's probably in his 70s or 80s. And he's probably just like a, a figurehead, you could say. They just allow him to stay there and sit nearby while his corrupt sons do the work at the temple. And Hannah, at this point, has lost her composure, and she's praying. She's weeping bitterly. And that word for bitter is, think back to the story with Naomi and Ruth. When Naomi goes back to her hometown, they call her Naomi, which means pleasant. And what does she say? Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, right? Bitterness. And this is the kind of bitterness that Hannah is weeping with. Her emotions have overtaken her, and she makes a vow to the Lord. Just quickly, vows were not something to be taken uh, as something not serious, but they were very serious. You had to fulfill them or you would be punished. In Numbers 30, it talks about vows in Israelites' history. And what would, um, if a woman made a vow in particular, the husband had the ability to veto it. But we don't see Elkanah doing this. He seems to agree with it, or at least just passively say, it's okay, she can do this. Well, what was the vow? What was her prayer? Her prayer was, Lord, if you give me a son, then I will give you him for the rest of his days. Now that, that's, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you forever, for all of his days of his life. She was going to put him through the Nazarite vow, where you couldn't cut your hair, couldn't drink any wine, and couldn't be near a dead body for your whole life. It was a a special vow, a a special, unique situation that you were offering yourself to the Lord for a holy purpose. And Hannah's trust in God is so much that she says even if she has this child, instead of raising him to protect her one day, she would give him to the Lord saying, God, I trust that you will be the one to protect me. Think of the idea of the first fruits. She's giving back the first fruits, her most precious thing, back to God. She, at least she's promising that at this point. It's a, it's a huge sacrifice that she's willing to make. 
Um, we see from her vow that she really wants to be accepted from her community and from God by having a son. She calls herself in verse 11, a servant of God. She recognizes God is above her, that God loves her, and that God, her giving back to God is worth it. Giving back this, this future son or possible son at this point would be of immense value. And she's making a contract with God at this point. It was something serious that she was going to want to fulfill and give back to him. She's ready to do this, it seems like that. And it's not a small deal. And at this point, we see that prayer for her is, is conversational with God. She's praying her emotions back to him. She recognizes that God can handle it. He can handle her fears, her challenges, her emotions. And as she prays, Eli is there. And Eli is kind of, we don't, maybe he had weak eyes there at the point, but he's watching this woman. Maybe, I don't know how far the distance would have been, but I would assume it's close enough. And he's watching this woman. It says her lips were moving, but she wasn't voicing anything. I could imagine she's probably crying, has tears down her cheeks. And he thinks, man, is that lady, that lady drunk over there? And Hannah says to him, no, I'm not a drunk woman. I'm not an impure woman. I'm pouring out my heart to God. I'm, not, I'm deeply troubled, but she doesn't care what others think of her. Think of the story. This reminds me just so much of the New Testament story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And this tax collector just crying, pouring out his heart to God, Lord, have mercy on me. And the Pharisee kind of just watching like arms folded. And we see that Jesus' answer to that in that particular story was that God justifies the one who prays unashamedly before him. And thankfully, Eli is not like the Pharisee. He does respond well. Um, We'll give him that. In verse 16, he even blesses her and says, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant what you asked of him. I don't know if Eli actually knew um, what Hannah was praying. It seems like he, he couldn't have understood that. But nonetheless, God blesses this blessing that Eli says. Hannah, something happens in Hannah's heart in verse 18. She now eats, or sorry, excuse me, she leaves, she eats something, and she her, she seems like she's refreshed. Her face is no longer downcast, and now she, she feels this peace that God has given her. She laid out her heart before him, and he's answered in some way. She, she senses that. She gets up, and she goes back to um, the, the temporary uh, tent that she would have been staying in. And the next morning, her husband and her, her family, they worship again, and then they return home. Back when they get home, Elkanah, says, made love to his wife, and the Lord remembered her. She got pregnant. She gave birth to Samuel. And in verse 20, she says, because I asked the Lord for him. The name Samuel just means the, that the Lord hears. So she understood the connection. This, she got pregnant. She had a son because of her prayers to the Lord at Shiloh several months before. Well, Hannah now wants to spend as much time as she can with her son because she's committed to fulfilling this vow. The next year, her husband, Elkanah, is getting ready to go to Shiloh, and she doesn't want to make the two-day trip. I don't blame her with an infant. Um, And she stays home. And Elkanah says, you know, will you come with me? She says, not yet. I will go when the child is ready to be weaned. So about two or three years old then. And so Elkanah just seems pretty passive again. He says, well, do whatever seems best to you in verse 23. 
Now, throughout the whole story, I see him as just kind of this distant husband, just wanting his wife to be happy, not wanting to actually help her in, her, in a truly uh, caring way. <coughs> the whole sacrifice here, to me, seems to be one, a one-spouse sacrifice, that Hannah is willing to make this vow to give back her son to God. And Eli, or Elkanah, just seems to be, I guess if that's what you want to do, you know, let, okay, well, that's fine. Um, and to me, I'm, I'm, I don't, he doesn't kind of score any points with me other than the fact that he doesn't restrict his wife from doing this. Well, Samuel now, in verse 24, is at the age when he's weaned, so figure two or three years old. And they take, um, <coughs> excuse me, Hannah and Elkanah take the bull, these 45 pounds of flour, <coughs> and the wine, and they bring it to Shiloh. And she's committed to fulfilling this vow before the Lord. And as a missionary who's come and gone from America, I know that saying goodbye to family is never easy. And I can just imagine this pit in her stomach now getting ready to give Samuel to the Lord and what her thoughts must have been must have been such just angst fighting within her that okay I'm, I'm ready to fulfill this vow to the Lord but man I have to give up my son I'm, I, I have to not be with him I've enjoyed him for these last few years and she gets there and it doesn't even seem like Eli knew this was going to happen and she says to him in verse 26 pardon me my Lord as surely as you live I am the woman who stood here praying beside you to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord, and he, will wor- and he worshiped the Lord there. Can you just imagine what Hannah's feeling right now? And I also just think it's worth thinking, what was God thinking now? as God was watching this, seeing this precious thing unfold. Now, God, we know God does have emotion, and God watches over us. So I I could only imagine what God himself is thinking that this child of his, Hannah, is doing and how deeply satisfied he must have been there. Hannah's giving over her first son to the Lord. I've never heard a sermon on the subject of tithing and dealing with this, but I think this is a powerful example of such an amazing gift that she's giving. And my question to moms in the room is, could you imagine doing something like this, giving over of your first child to the Lord? And not only giving it to the Lord, but giving it to the Lord through this dysfunctional family. This seems like the absolute worst foster family that there could have been in the history of the world. I don't think that they, they certainly wouldn't qualify in the state of California for the foster system. I'd hope not in the New York um, state that Eli and his dysfunctional children there. But she's trusting that this gift back to God will be worth it, that God will use it in spite of Eli's family. And the song that was read earlier by um, Paul Nelson is what we'll look at in chapter 2. So Hannah has given now her son, and she's ready to speak these profound theological truths, truths that have really gone deep into her heart and her soul. And she says in chapter 2 that she's delighted that she received this deliverance from God. She acknowledges that there's no one like the Lord, 
that God is the one who judges everything and that people who are proud or arrogant, they're just people talking nonsense. And Hannah seems to contrast herself with Penina, the co-wife, that she who has borne many children pines away, that it's God who brings life, who brings wealth, and who exalts people. God lifts people up, especially the dejected, those who are hurting, and he guards the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked, they are silenced. It's very similar to the Psalms here, what we see in the Psalms. God will justly rule in verse 10. He will justly rule and judge the whole earth and bring vindication to his people. God is the one who reverses the fate of those who are despised and goes against all the world systems that oppress. Her faith in God and praise towards him throughout this song shows such hope, such um, long-suffering ability to see that God gives so much differently than the world gives to us. Now, after this, we don't hear a whole lot about Hannah other than she would go back every year to um, Shiloh and see her son. She'd bring a little robe for him. She must have just cherished that time with her son. I just, I can't imagine how much joy that must have brought to her. And Eli blessed her and her husband and said, look, I will, I bless you that you might have more children. And God honored this request and had three, they had three more sons together and two daughters in chapter 221. Now, if we just ended the story there, that would be a beautiful story in and of itself. But I want to just briefly share who this son was that she had. She gave birth to Samuel, and Samuel would be, like I said, the one to lead Israel. He was the last judge to lead them into now uh, the, the monarchy that they would have, the king kingdom there, particularly with Saul. And Samuel grew up in this temple with Eli and these two wicked sons, but we don't see, thankfully, we don't see that Samuel became tainted by um, the, the son's wickedness there. And Eli, from a young age, taught Samuel to hear God's voice and to obey it. And we see that in 1 Samuel 3, that basically Samuel was a godly man. He was well-respected. It says, 1 Samuel 3, 19 to 21, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. All of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So God honored Samuel, attested he was a prophet. He was one who spoke God's words. But Hannah didn't know who Samuel would be when she prayed that brokenhearted prayer, right? She prayed for a son, and she would give him back to the Lord. She never knew that God would actually answer her prayers in this way. And her prayers changed the, the nation of Israel forever. Um, and I, I think that our prayers do the same today. And may we use that example of her praying and continue to pray for big things in our nation's life today. So what would be some lessons we can get from Hannah's story? The first one that I can think of is that Hannah responded well to people who are antagonistic or just unhelpful to her. The antagonistic person we see in her life was her co-wife, Panina. She would make her, tease her so much that she couldn't eat. I don't know if you've had relational conflict in your life where it gets so bad that you're just... 
your your stomach is just churning and you feel heart palpitations and it's not like you want to go order the biggest thing at your favorite restaurant then you're struggling to eat and Hannah was in this kind of condition we don't see that she got bitter or angry or wanted revenge against this co-wife Panina but instead she brought her pains to the Lord in prayer her who were the unhelpful people in her life well, her husband seemed to be kind of unhelpful throughout the story. And instead of like refusing to submit to him or challenging him, when, especially when he asked the question, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? We just see that she's gracious towards him. She doesn't respond in an unkind or, um, or divisive manner to this question. She's not contentious through in this story. And then Eli Eli, she could have easily just wanted to tell him off and say, look, look at you, you know, you got you old man who you can't control your own son, your own sons. You think I'm drunk? Look at your own kids. She didn't say that. She was respectful and kind to him. And then in return, he was thankfully respectful and kind back to her. How are you with people who are combative? Do you want to fight back? Do you want to respond to everything on social media these days? Or are you willing to let things go? And I'm not saying we should let everything go, but we oftentimes, I think, uh, think the letting go f- uh, amount of things we need to let go is very small, but maybe in God's eyes it's a lot bigger. The second one is prayer. Prayer for Hannah is meant to be conversational and intimate with God. Her prayer was beautiful because it was heartfelt and she cried from deep anguish. She realized that her rock-hard womb could only be opened by an almighty God. It's interesting to note that she could have actually at that time paid the priest to pray on her behalf, but she doesn't do that. She goes directly to God. I think it's such a beautiful testimony and example of that Hebrews passage that we might know, Hebrews 4. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. But he didn't sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hannah seemed to understand this many, many years before that was written, where she directly went to the, the real high priest instead of the one there to, to ask and open her heart up before the Lord. Just about prayer, um, one thing I want to share just is that God cares what's in our minds, in our hearts, and he wants us to share those things with him. Prayer isn't just praying through a checklist saying, God, please heal my sick aunt, my you know, dog is uh, dying, he has cancer, we pray for these things. No, prayer is also about talking to the Lord about what we're going through. Lord, I don't understand why I'm reacting in this way. We know that God, um, God doesn't just look at the outward appearance. He told Samuel that he looks at the inner heart, and that's why God chose David ultimately, because God knew what was in his heart. We can't run from God, and God already knows what's going on in us. So I, I oftentimes, in my experience, sense that the sooner we reveal our issues to him, the sooner he can start working on them and the Holy Spirit can start uh, making, uh, making us more like him. And Hannah understood this. The third lesson I think we can get from Hannah is that God is often doing something much bigger than our immediate pain. 
And we see that um, even though Hannah, she had real pain, it was personal, it was at a certain time, it was at a certain location, um, that God would use that pain to bring about something great in Israel's history for his glory. And God often does that in our pain. He uses our pain, our struggles, our trials to actually, if we're willing to be taught by them, it says in Hebrews, if we're willing to be taught by that discipline, it yields a harvest of righteousness. That pain does hurt. It is real. We shouldn't just tell people, ah, one day you'll get over it. Don't worry. We should be with, the Bible says that we should be with one another in our pain or in each other's pain, but that though that pain can be used for something wonderful later on and that God will one day reveal what that challenge, what that hard, difficult situation was for. The last point that I learned from Hannah is that ultimate submission is to God alone. And Hannah recognized that God was in full control of everything in the life. She's not looking for magical potions or priests to fix her problem of being infertile, but she trusts God. She, she says, if, if, you're gonna, if anyone can fix it, it's you. And that's why she prays to him so that he can fix it. And notice that she even gives her child to a dysfunctional family at the temple, that she trusts and submits this child to God, even though it wasn't logical. She knew she was, that the Lord was the one who was going to, um, who was omnipotent and could make this thing into something beautiful. Just in conclusion, um, we're, we'll talk about Mary next week. But we can see from Hannah that she was a, a good example, a good biblical character of someone who trusted in the Lord to deal with something that was really, really difficult. And she knew that he was good and God did respond and was kind and opened uh, her womb and gave her a son that would lead Israel well. The story of Hannah and Samuel is very, there's a lot of similarity between that and the story of Mary and Jesus. Both of these mothers would give up their sons for the greater good of Israel. But Jesus would go further than Samuel, and he would care and carry the sins of the world to forgive us, to allow us to be forgiven if we trust in him. Both of these moms also dedicated their children at a temple. And according to the law of the Lord, we see that the firstborn that was born is to be consecrated to him. And both moms were doing that. Mary and Hannah also then both rejoiced in a song afterwards and praising God. They were praising him and the sovereign Lord for his hand in creation. And both moms would watch in amazement as their kids grew up and were used in God's purposes to bring him glory. It says in the Bible that both Samuel and Jesus grew in wisdom, they grew in stature and favor of the Lord as prophets and in priests. But where Jesus separates from Samuel is that Jesus was and is the eternal king and his kingdom has no end and that one day everyone will bow in recognition of that kingdom. So as we close today, I just want to ask, have you considered Jesus's rule in your life? Have you given your life to him? Have you submitted your will to his? And that's not just a one-time thing. That is a daily thing that us Christians need to continue to give back to him, to ask him for help. And that peace that he promises through the Holy Spirit is given to us. 
And so I'd ask you just now to join with me as we pray, and we just thank God for the gift of his son and for this wonderful testimony of Hannah, who faithfully trusted in him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the story of Hannah. I thank you for her faith. I thank you that um, she is a godly woman that wanted to, um, that trusted in you, that at her deepest moment of pain, you saw her and you um, recognized and heard her cry. And I pray that we also would not be so arrogant or so um, uh, uh, thoughtless in our life to think that you are not um, hearing us when we need you most. And I pray, Lord, that I thank you for the example of Samuel and Jesus and the similarities there. I, pray, I praise you that you offered us your son to die for us and that we could have peace um, through him uh, with you forever, Lord. And may we grow in that, Lord. May we grow in that peace and that ultimate joy um, today. Amen.